0: Hi, this is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Conversation of the Week. Today, you'll hear an interview originally recorded back in 2013 with Philadelphia Orchestra concertmaster David Kim. Although it's been a few years, everything he had to say then is just as relevant today, and worth revisiting even if you heard the interview when it was originally released. In this conversation, you'll hear him describe his three-phase process for preparing for performance, in addition to some of the valuable insights he's gained over his career that have helped him get past imposter syndrome and approach his work with more confidence and less ego and insecurity. There's a few key things that I'm really curious about, uh, given your background and years of experience, both you know with competitions, orchestra traditions and performing solo works and uh, ensemble and, and orchestrally. Uh, but the overriding question, I suppose, is, I'm curious as to how you prepare for performances, in particular, the really stressful, big deal kind of performances that you have.
1: Well, I, it's, I've kind of come full circle. I used to—I um, mean, I practiced so much. I'm sure you've read the Gladwell book, um, mm-hmm. Outliers. Right. You know, I've—I've uh, I've done my beyond ten thousand mm-hmm. hours of practice and all that stuff. So there have been periods in my life where I'm not proud to say, but I have kind of ridden my talents and all those years of practice and, uh, kind of just play through and kind of just get familiar with the material again. And that kind of, kind of like an overview and review that kind of thing, but nothing too woodsheddy, if you will. And then, as I'm getting older now, I'm 49 now, and as I feel more and more the ravages of time, um, <laughs> I can't depend on my, all that old practice and I can't depend on my nerves as much. Uh, so, um, I've come back around to just plain old, really slow wood shedding. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's been kind of a revelation even within the last six months. And mm. it's, um, it's just amazing that the the fruit is so immediate and um, it's just uh, it's very affirming and it's just right at the moment when you're on stage and the solo rolls around. I I don't know, something psychologically you just feel in the back of your mind. You're like, okay, I really practice. And it's just, it's miraculous. Like the intonation is even higher, kind of clearer level, um, you're, it's just everything feels more somehow solid and assured. So um, it's a very general answer and it's not that terribly specific, but that's my main goal nowadays when I'm preparing for something. It's just over and over kind of repetitive, slow, slow practice. Um, I guess I could add one more thing, and that mm-hmm. is that I've always, and this is probably from my, uh, from Dorothy DeLay's influence, uh, for me, intonation is the great, great equalizer. And so um, my one uh, overarching goal is always to try to play in tune. And so in doing that, many other issues are addressed.
0: Right. So it's just making sure that I'm trying to play in tune. Would you mind describing a little bit what the slow woodshedding looks like? Just kind of assuming I, I don't even have a concept of what that might appear like in the practice room?
2: Well,
1: I I may have have even mentioned this to you, uh, to those at the uh, symposium when you were taking those notes, but um, it's been shown through studies that when you're trying to teach a young person a new language, you repeat Mm -hmm. a certain word seven times. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of try to stick by that when I find a difficult spot Mm -hmm. in a piece or in a solo that's very tricky. I'll literally kind of which it's really slowly. I mean, I like to try to do note by note and then I find that the problems can lie in shifts Okay. and that's where the dangers lie. And so I will do the shifts back and forth, um, minimum seven times, even if they're going well, I don't just say, okay, it's, it's good. Now I can move on. I really try to just solidify it over and over and try to do it well seven times. And then, um, I uh, usually, in most of my music, um, I put a little X in the margin. So if I come back to a piece, say, two or three years later, or even five years after I've played it last, um, I know which places are particularly problematic. Okay. And um, it, I, I will focus on those places. Hmm. And then as I get closer to the performance state, I will um, kind of um, intersperse the slow practice with Mm run-throughs, and try to get used to the feeling of not stopping, not fixing, but just kind of going through. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, at the very end, the last possible moment, right before I go on stage, I really find that that is really the most valuable time to do some really slow woodshedding. Just Mm -hmm. really, really just kind of trying to discover even little problematic things hand position things even 20 minutes before I walk on stage mm-hmm. I'll still be trying to find wait a minute I just discovered if I whatever if I mm-hmm. pronate my wrist this little bit on this mm-hmm. it really helps and if I try to make the bow feel sticky mm-hmm. for these three notes it helps me nail that next shoot. you know things like that I find that it's so kind of delightful at mm-hmm. the last second when you're when you're suffering from nerves Mm -hmm. to boom and find those last second things
0: it sounds like it's a very thoughtful process for you i mean you're not just going through the motions but you're really paying very close attention to the minute details as you're going through it slowly i mean is that fair to say
1: absolutely absolutely
0: and um kind of reminds me of i mean I, i didn't take a lot of martial arts but i took some and i remember one of uh, the teachers or instructors was often talking about doing things very slowly, doing the kick slowly, because if you could do it really slowly, you were much more cognizant of what actually was happening as you were doing a particular technique. Um,
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think if you go through many different sports, you'll find a lot of the same themes. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, a Really, one of the great teachers of the 20th century of golf is a man named Harvey Penick, hmm. and he uh, was the teacher of some of the great golfers of our time, mainly from Texas, Ben Mm -hmm. Crenshaw, Tom Kite. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wrote a little book of um, kind of just little kind of homely, kind of of down home, um, just kind of little bits of advice. And one of them Mm -hmm. was to just practice your golf swing, like super, super slow, not even having a ball there. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, I've I've really tried to adopt that to violin practice at times. And, Mm -hmm. I tell kids, hey, just sit in front of the TV. I mean, the parents are gasping in horror, but I think <laughs> sit in front of the TV, no bow, mm-hmm. but just hold the violin like a guitar and just just practice to be brought to motion so it looks good first. Because mm-hmm. as soon as we have the bow and we hear stuff, then we get all paranoid and mm-hmm. we forget about the, what would it be the original purpose of our practice session. And mm-hmm. if you just kind of sit there, and I find it's a great way to kind of, get them to understand the motion and the getting the kind of the right look of a vibrato before, Mm -hmm. before moving on to personalize it because it is probably the most personal of all things in violin playing is the vibrato motion.
0: Right. It sounds like that's probably where a lot of your confidence comes from. Is that perhaps the case?
1: hmm. I mean, it's weird. It's it's a it's a real mind game. I mean, you'd think after 13 years as concertmaster of one of the world's great orchestras that I would be brimming with confidence and <laughs> feeling so good about where I am in my career and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But it gets harder. It's um, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's almost as though you sense your mortality and mm-hmm. your um. It, I'm, I'm a Christian, and so I'm mm-hmm. trying to always not think of myself as a great person and, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm a good person, and I'm trying to to come to terms with my own sinful nature, and that's kind of Mm -hmm. one of the tenets of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so I feel the same thing about my playing. Mm
2: -hmm. I don't even
1: have to try. I I feel more of my inadequacies as a violinist and musician as I learn more and live more and play more, perform more, Mm -hmm. and yet to get on stage and actually do it to actually Mm -hmm. be able to get on stage and not melt in a puddle of urine or vomit, Mm -hmm. if if I could be so bold as to say. um, Mm -hmm. Really, um, I'm not really trying to be funny. I'm really kind of saying that it's it's the truth that um, there are times when you have to kind of psych yourself up and kind of get away from all that modesty and, oh, I'm not that good, and, and you just have to keep saying, oh, come on, you're the best, you're the best, come on you can do this. You're not here as an accident. You just have to right. spike yourself up. And then you kind of mentally have this game. Like It's like right the moment before you jump off the high diving board, you're like, come on, go for it, go for it, go, mm-hmm. for, it. go for it, go for it. You know, like kind of
2: right.
1: spiking yourself up. And sometimes that's about all you can do. Like it's just say a little prayer and just go for it.
0: To go for it but it's sort of interesting because I remember one of the things you talked about um, is – that behind the screen you can get a sense of whether the person is being tentative and if there's some fear there or if this person, you know, despite the fears, is really prepared to go forward and, and trust themselves. Have you found a way That's to a... do that yourself that seems to work pretty consistently in those moments where you aren't quite sure how things are going to go?
1: Well, hmm, no, I find that uh, something that has been a real revelation to me, say in the last year, mm-hmm. has been, and, and don't get me wrong, it's not like all these epiphanies have happened in the last 12 months, but right. it's just an ongoing process with mm-hmm. all the pressure. You're just constantly mulling things over and trying to mm-hmm. figure things out. But I find that sometimes, I, it was, I, I can't remember, I think last fall, my orchestra, we were on tour in Europe. and. um mm-hmm. I have a kind of small group of friends and got three other guys and we um, actually two other guys and a woman and the four of us have like a little dining club and mm-hmm. we'll research, a, you know, a little out of the way wine bar and out of in the outskirts of Vienna or something. You know, we'll just always find little foodie joints and mm-hmm. great wine and then and we'll go and we'll talk about all kinds of stuff. And after all the conversations we have, of course, about things like our children or, what our favorite foods are for cinema or whatever it is. Um, invariably, discussions come back to the orchestra, soloists that we've had, our opinions of various guest conductors, our colleagues, our own playing, our own fears, vulnerabilities. And I kind of came to the realization that we shouldn't be worrying so much about what people think of our playing. I mean, I'm certainly mm-hmm. constantly trying to not worry about what people think of my playing. Mm -hmm. And because it's just paralyzing, it's counterproductive, it's stupid. Um, And uh, what I realized was, in a nutshell, people, even the greatest musicians, even my colleagues who are some of the most wonderful, esteemed artists in the world, Mm -hmm. they don't
2: remember.
1: We, I, I, if you ask me what our program was two two weeks ago mm-hmm. in Philadelphia at our new festival with the Academy of Music, I can't remember. It just we play so many concerts a mm-hmm. year. year after year, there's so many soloists. We play the same repertoire over and over. We play new repertoire over and over. Mm-hmm. You know it, we're discovering new things. Um, we see some favorite conductors year after year. Some conductors come once they're done. It's just impossible to remember every little detail. And mm-hmm. I realized that it's more fun. It's more rewarding to just live in the moment, go for it, and try to just actually try to enjoy the moment as crazy as that, as that mm-hmm. seems. Mm-hmm. Because next week, if I, in my paranoid way, go to Mark and say, Mark, did you notice that I was really out of tune last week? But Mark is not even gonna remember. Mark's gonna have a kind of a vague, foggy recollection and say, you know, Dave, I kinda remember from last week, but I thought it was fine, you know, and (laughs) he's moved on as soon as he walked out of the concert hall that night. And Mm -hmm. I realize I'm the same way. I don't remember much at all from ten years ago and and there have been some incredible performances Mm -hmm. through the years in concert halls all over the world. With the world's greatest soloists, the world's greatest conductors, with this with this tremendous orchestra, and I don't remember a lot of it. I just have vague recollections of certain performances where the moon and the stars lined up, and it was magical. Right. But it's kind of kind of a general remembrance, but not specifics or anything like that.
0: Mm. When you have those really magical or, or memorable performances that everything just seems to come together at one moment. Do you have an idea of of what you're thinking about at those moments, as opposed to the times where, you know, it's one of those real struggling, difficult, um, rough performances?
1: Well, that's the, that's the irony is that at least for me, when, when you are in the middle of one of those magical performances, uh, where you just know everybody feels it, everybody on stage, Mm -hmm. The audience, is the conductor, mm-hmm. everybody is on a different plane um, mm-hmm. where you just know it's one of those performances people walk out and remember some people for the rest of their lives. And mm-hmm. um, I, I have to say that it happens quite often as a member of this orchestra. And I don't just say that because it's my orchestra. Right. I, mean, I, I really say that because we're very fortunate. We play in these incredible venues, full houses, um, tremendous soloists. Um, and the irony is when we do have those days or those moments on stage, you don't think about anything. You're just mm-hmm. reacting. You're almost kind of in an altered state mm-hmm. and, uh, you just, you just enjoy being in
0: the zone. To have a recollection of what it is that you're thinking about when it's not one of those kinds of performances?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking, I could be thinking negative thoughts like what kind of idiot programmed this piece, you know, what audience would like this kind of long boring piece? Or I could be thinking something like I cannot wait to have this open, this bottle of Cabernet after and I'm going to, Oh, I have to remember. I have to go to the bank tomorrow and I got to get my oil changed this week. And, uh, I forgot to write down something to change in this part for so the next time we play it that doesn't work. This, mm-hmm. this down up configuration doesn't work. So mm-hmm. I got to remember. And sometimes I will even do something as crazy as in a brief rest, I'll put my wedding ring on the wrong hand. I'll put it on my ring finger of my mm-hmm. other hand. Mm-hmm. And then when I get off stage, it'll remind me something really important like, oh i got to go to the library and get music for next week so I can prepare before I go home because I'm not going to be back in the city until Tuesday. You know, Mm -hmm. it can be as mundane as that. Or Mm -hmm. I could be thinking, oh, can you believe these people are sleeping in the middle of an incredible performance by the Philadelphia Orchestra? I could look over from the corner of my eye and see uh, somebody absolutely out for the count. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, in a nutshell, I could be thinking of anything. It could be absolutely anything.
0: Have you found a way to to shut that off and get back to where it is that you were?
1: Um, I received some fantastic advice from a violinist who's here right now with us in Vail. Um, She's just vacationing, but she's one of the great soloists of uh, of our time. Her name is Nadja Salerno Sonnenberg. Mm -hmm. And she and I are childhood friends. And I remember, I mean, she's got this. God-given ability to just have people give her like a standing ovation after the Mm. first 10 minutes. I mean, (laughs) it's like this visceral reaction. She has this animal kind of excitement and instant. It's kind of Martha Mm. Argrich-esque. And I asked her about that once when we were about 13 or 14 and she Mm. said, you know, sometimes when I'm kind of not into it on stage, Mm. I'll, almost pretend that I am, I'll move a little more, maybe I'll make a couple of faces, maybe I'll toss my head a little bit, maybe I'll crouch down for a second, whatever she'll do, she'll try to kind of shock her system into being more into it. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, if I feel a little bit out of it mentally, I will do exactly that. I'll perhaps lead a little bit more physically, Mm -hmm. a little more aggressively, Mm -hmm. I'll try to make more eye contact with my colleagues, Mm -hmm. I'll try to have more kind of this unspoken contact with the conductor. Mm-hmm. And uh many times it works, or I might even play to the audience a little bit and try to feel that I'm having some kind of connection with the audience, mm-hmm. those people who are in the first ten rows and it, uh, many times it it might snap me out of it
0: that's interesting i never I never heard that before it makes sense though I mean I don't know if you've read any um his name is kind of hard to pronounce I think it's Mihai Mihaly Mihai, the guy who originated this whole notion of flow or being in the zone have you read any of his stuff oh, I've never heard of it. yeah I mean he's he's at the University of Chicago he's been around writing about this for maybe I don't know 30 years or so now and he uh he was doing a talk recently and um I think this is just an estimate but essentially we have a fixed attentional capacity there's only so much we can think about or pay attention to or process at any given point in time. And, uh, you know, for instance, if you try to have a conversation with both of your kids at the same time, I mean, it's not possible because one conversation (laughs) takes about 60 bits. The other conversation takes about 60 bits and we can only pay attention to about 110. So we end up dropping lots of what ends up happening in front of us. And so, um, One of the the difficult things is making sure we monopolize our limited attentional capacity with only those things that are related to what we're doing at this very moment in time. And it sounds like with, with her strategy there of, of pretending that you're into it and I mean, all the things you described have to do with what you are doing in the moment, not things that are outside of you or outside of the hall. And, you know, they're happening right now, they're not happening a line from now, or, you know, two measures ago, they're happening right now. And so it seems like that would be a pretty good way of bringing you back to what is happening in the moment. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive that she came up with that at 13.
1: Yeah, but she is really an extraordinary performer and has always been. Um, we've all known it, and we've all just been kind of innocent bystanders mm. as she just takes over. It's mm. just, it's, it'll always be there. and She's just one of the most extraordinary performers that mm. I've ever seen.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I have a couple more general questions i suppose that have more to do with career if that's okay sure um i'm always curious about people's successes and also their failures and and what they they find to be their successes and failures because oftentimes it's not what other people on the outside would consider looking at that person and so i'm curious about what you would consider to be your greatest success in music or even outside for that matter
1: well, my greatest success—if that's an easy one—is um, winning the audition process to become concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, it was—it was so much more difficult than anything I've ever done in my life, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it was just—it was a, a long process. Um, I had auditioned for. Uh, five when i i was in my early 30s like 33 when i decided that finally i kind of finally came to the realization that i was not going to make it as a big time soloist Mm. um and the the fact that it was so late in my years as a musician shows you how how delusional i was and how naive that I thought, oh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 32 and I still might get that call or mm-hmm. hook up with the right manager or something. It, it could, it's right around the corner, So mm-hmm. shows you basically how stupid I was and self-delusional. self, self delusional. Um, So when I finally uh, started auditioning for orchestras, I failed miserably at the first five. I auditioned mm-hmm. twice in Chicago for Concertmaster, twice in Cincinnati for Concertmaster, Master. Um, once in New Jersey Symphony for mm-hmm. Concert Master. And then I finally started realizing that, oh, man, you got to... And this was all my wife. Mm-hmm. She was like, gosh, would it not be sensible to pay your dues a little bit? You know, Would it be so <laughs> destructive to your ego if you played mm-hmm. assistant concertmaster Concert Master maybe mm-hmm. for a year or two? And after I got over my indignant... It, <laughs> I was so <laughs> indignant that, you know, she would consider me anything less than a concert master. Right, um,
2: right.
1: I started taking auditions, and immediately I, I found success. Um, hmm. And um, but then that ju- that next jump to get to the big time to, to become concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra was a long process. Um, the audition was um, four rounds, and then then they, it was down to me and, uh, an, a, ironically, the gentleman who won first prize in the Tchaikovsky competition in 1986 hmm. when I was there. And um, his name is Ilya Collar, K-A-L-L-E-R. K-A-L-E-R, oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Unbelievable oh. violinist. And he, I mean, it was not even close. He just kicked all of our asses mm-hmm. in 86 in Moscow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, he, he was like a man among boys. And uh, it was just kind of strange that, Many years later, um, we ended up competing for this job. Right. But um, obviously, I was never going to outplay him. I mean, he's a different league than me as a violinist. Mm-hmm. But uh, I worked as hard as I could, and uh, you know, there there have been a few times in my life where I've really sacrificed and worked really, really hard, and this mm-hmm. was one of those times. Um, and then when I came back to Philadelphia about four months after the initial audition process or two weeks of trial concerts. just basically joining the orchestra for two weeks of mm-hmm. subscription concerts, including a concert at Carnegie hall. Mm. Um, you know, that was, uh, that was one of the great, great achievements of my life. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's certainly the, the greatest one.
0: Wow. Is it okay if I ask about your most difficult failure and how you, you bounce back from that?
1: Oh, of course. I I was fully expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I guess I would have to say it's kind of in the same vein, um, but it's not one occasion. It was the first, I would say, about five, six years of my career as concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra from '99 to roughly. Let's see, wait a minute. Let me do some math here. We're in 2012. Yeah. I would say about the first five or six years of my career as concertmaster at Philadelphia Orchestra mm-hmm. were, in many ways, a, a great failure. Mm. I've never said that to anybody, um, mm. but I'm very comfortable speaking about it now. Um, it was a combination of um, ego, stupidity, um, Hubris, arrogance,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, insecurity more than anything, insecurity, mm-hmm. pride. Um, I i just came in guns a-blazing and thought that I had to be the savior, the, the greatest concertmaster in the history of the world. I just mm-hmm. thought I had to be the new sheriff in town. Mm-hmm. I had to show people that I was the boss, and I was just a real jerk for, I mean, not all the time, mm-hmm. but... Um, there are moments where I just, I would hurt people. I would say unkind things and that's not me. Right. It's really not me. Oh. And I was out of my, it was like an out of body experience and, um, alienated people, hurt people, um, made enemies. I never had enemies before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Suddenly I had enemies. Um, hmm. uh, it was an awful time and I hated my job and, I was just a very unhappy person. I would wake up. I hated going to work every day. Mm. Um, I was lonely, you know, orchestra would go on tour for three weeks and
2: mm-hmm.
1: I would be in a utter, I would be in utter depression and loneliness because I wouldn't have any friends. Mm. You know, we go to a different city every other day and people are going out to eat and shopping and sightseeing together and walking to the hall. You know, they have friends and, mm-hmm. and groups and, and I was alone and lonely and alienated and marginalized and I felt mm-hmm. horrible. And uh, so that was, through my own stupidity and stubbornness, I was, because uh, I, I guarantee you there were people that were trying to give me great advice and right. you know, gently trying to say, including my parents, like, mm-hmm. come on, you, you don't have to be like that. And you, don't have to, you don't have to prove anything to anybody. You just have to do your best and be humble, and you know, put your trust in God, and things will turn out okay. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't do that. I, I wanted to do it on my own strength and
2: prove right.
1: on my own, and it was an utter failure. And um, don't believe it if you speak to other people. They'll say, "Oh no, David was <laughs> great and he did a fantastic job." Don't believe that. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. It, it, there are you know brief moments of of happiness or you know a little bit of redemption, but. In general, it was it was not good.
0: Do you remember what it was that started to turn things around for you?
1: Well, certainly the greatest thing is my faith, my Christian mm. faith, um, and realizing that I was never going to accomplish anything on my own, of mm. my own efforts, of my own talents or anything. Yes, um, that it was a, a power much greater than my own, and that I had to surrender to that. And in doing that, I could actually relax a little bit Mm -hmm. and kind of surrender and just let things happen on their own. And and then it wasn't such a disaster if I made mistakes along the way and I said stupid things in meetings or I Mm -hmm. stood up at the orchestra in front of the orchestra during rehearsal and suggested something that was actually obvious to everyone or, you know, just things like that. I all suddenly didn't have to worry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was one of the key things. Another thing that happened was, there were a lot of personnel changes within about two years at the orchestra mm-hmm. that made life much different for me. Mm. And I won't speak of any departures. I won't speak of any personalities, but I will speak of arrivals. Mm. And um, one critical arrival was my stand partner, Juliet Kang. Mm. And um, I, uh, it was just an amazing transformation in just the way I could do my job um, having somebody there as a colleague, but also as a friend mm-hmm. whose um, the chemistry between us on stage working together was just perfection i think mm-hmm. i think um, and um i'm just I knew that was critical and the key arrival in mm-hmm. new personnel um, that was the beginning of a huge turnaround in my life hmm. and um, yeah so that was that was the beginning those those two things and um, those two things were kind of the genesis of many other things that kind of are difficult to explain but uh, just also just the time that had gone by and they I had heard from some colleagues who were very experienced orchestra players that usually it takes about 7 years to get through all the repertoire mm. standard repertoire to where you start feeling like hey you know I kind of I know kind of the basic stuff and mm. I'm going to see some stuff over and over again and you don't have mm. to sit there and woodshare and learn stuff every mm. single time
2: mm.
1: and they were right it took about 7 years and about 7 years in I was like suddenly like oh my gosh I didn't have to practice <laughs> New music for every single program because early on, the first several years, every piece was new to me. Right. Even if it was standard to everybody else, Nate right. played it a million times. For right. me, it was all new, right. and that meant a Beethoven piano concerto accompaniment, a Mozart piano concerto accompaniment, even stuff that was technically not difficult. I mean, I mean, I would go to the old Power Records and I would buy, you know, easily I would buy five hundred dollars of CDs mm. every few months mm-hmm. and just sit there with earphones on and listen listen and put them in my car and listen over and over again, just trying to marinate my brain as much as I could so I wouldn't make a total fool of myself on stage right. at the first rehearsal. Because everybody else, they, they knew it by memory almost, I right. They remembered everything, but it was all new to me.
0: Something in what you were talking about reminded me of, uh, have you ever heard the term imposter syndrome? No. They've they've done some studies, and I don't remember exactly the, the nature of these studies, but they wanted to find out how prevalent this imposter syndrome was, where it's basically where you have the credentials, you know, you are on paper perfectly capable, but you have this fear that one day you're going to be found out, that your colleagues or that others will somehow realize that you're some kind of a fraud and that you're not really who it is that you've made yourself out to be. And um, wow. And that's so common, not amongst, uh, you know, folks who don't have credentials, but, you know, they, they looked at attorneys who have to pass a bar exam and, you know, psychologists and doctors, people who really have to go through not just educational rigor, but, but a whole licensing credentialing process. And they found that it was a pretty staggering percentage of those folks who are secretly afraid that one day everything's going to come crashing down and they're going to be re- revealed as some kind of a fraud. And, I mean, it sounds like that—that that might have been part of what was happening in the early years, but certainly now it seems like you've gone past that. and Just have because one well, of the things. Now, go ahead. Noah,
1: mm-hmm. now I'm sorry to interrupt you, but now I realize that I don't. It, it's true. Mm-hmm. That I'm not an imposter, but I do realize how inadequate I am, really, for the job. But in the words of Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. I'm good enough on a playing level. I'm mm-hmm. good at basically just good enough to handle the musical aspect, but it's the other things that I bring to the table, I think, that make me quite fit for the job is Mm. that I love to talk to people. I love to fundraise. Mm. I I love to get up in front of an audience and speak. Mm. I love to be the spokesman for the orchestra. Mm. Um, And that's what Gladwell was saying is that um, they looked at all these people with incredibly high IQs and not they didn't necessarily achieve what they wanted because they didn't have the EQ they -hmm. had the IQ right and um, so now I'm very very aware and comfortable with the fact that I'm certainly not the best fiddle player in the room but I'm good enough Mm -hmm. and I can I can also offer some other gifts
0: and maybe you've already spoken to this one last question if it's okay, is there anything that you wish you would have known when you were just starting out in your career that when you were in your twenties or early thirties, you just could have you know now that forty nine go back in time and just tell yourself something that would have made a difference for you?
1: Wow, that is a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that um gotta be something about when I was talking about my greatest failures,
2: right, right. Hmm. well huh. i I can't think of
1: anything i mean there it's just it's just overwhelming to think of all the yeah. <laughs> all the experiences that I have mm-hmm. experienced in life and um, as a, as a violinist completely away from what. I had envisioned my whole childhood and what my parents envisioned for me and what mm-hmm. everybody told me was a foregone conclusion that I was right. going to be another child prodigy become mm-hmm. a star, you know, mm-hmm. Yo-Yo or Big right. and right. And um, it just couldn't have ended up further from the truth, further, further from the truth in, in that I you know, played in a chamber music group here and there. I founded a chamber music festival. I played strolling violin at Bloomingdale's, and it just, it just goes on and on. There are just millions of things that I've done that I, I could never have experienced that I would ever have predicted, nor would I have wanted back then because of my huge ego. I was like, are you kidding? I won't teach. That's for weaker violins. I'm not going to mm-hmm. teach. I'm, I'm a performer, you know, mm-hmm. but now I teach a lot, and I love it, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably what I'm going to end up doing someday when I retire. I think I'll end up teaching. So you just go figure, you just never know.
0: When I've talked to older folks, that's what they say, that you know, you just never end up doing what it is that you think you're going to do, and you, you get what it is that you want, but it looks totally different than you thought it was going to look.
2: Yeah, it's so,
0: It's just confusing, I suppose.
1: I remember when I first decided to go audition for orchestra, the first person I went to was Angel Brusilov. He was the... Mm. Brusilov was the, in my opinion, the greatest concertmaster of all time. He was in, not for that long, but he was in the 60s under Ormandy mm. when they made a lot of recordings, you know, just little landmark recordings. And um, he lives in Dallas now, and uh, I flew down there and took a coaching with him. And, you know, wonderful. It was just so, mm. I learned so much. But then I also went to Glendictorough and... Mm. He lived up in New Rochelle and I was living in Westchester County at the time. So I went over and um, we started out by just talking for a couple of minutes. And he said, so um, what have you been doing the last couple of years? And he know, knew a little bit about me. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I've been working on my solo career. And he kind of chuckled. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I used to think that too before I decided to become a concertmaster. And I remember the feeling I Got right when he said that it, it was indignation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like thinking to myself, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm still right. there's still a possibility that that might happen. Mm-hmm. But now I see that you know, what a great life! I mean, it's a very exclusive club mm-hmm. to be concertmaster at one of the big five orchestras. Mm-hmm. And I perhaps getting back to your earlier question that I didn't have an answer for you was maybe that's what I wish I had known when I was 22 coming out of Juilliard, that how wonderful the life is being a member of a great orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I would have started a lot earlier. I would have wasted a lot less time lying to people and coming up with this tall tale week mm-hmm. after week, like, oh, yes, I've been on tour. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I was, you know, playing in a little public library in Long Island or something. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was kind of living this lie, I think people would say, oh, well, you know, it's going to happen for you, you're, you're on your way. And mm-hmm. if I really, really looked at myself honestly in the mirror, I would have seen probably by the time I was mid-20s that it wasn't mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was years away. That was years away. That, that took to me.
0: I was just talking to Menachem Pressler, and, and when he answered that question, he said that, you know, if he's honest with himself now even at 88 he he knew the answer to that question way back when like kind of like how you're saying right now like if you were honest with yourself then and looked in the mirror you would have been able to tell yourself then what it is that you would tell yourself now and he was saying that yeah 50 years ago I mean I I knew it then but I I wasn't really ready to know it then
1: and then you can't you can't enjoy you can't be experienced and successful and wise if you don't go through all that stupid stupid stuff. Right, right. You know? <laughs> so, so that's just the way it goes. You have, to, you have to make your mistakes and learn. and That's what I was just telling my daughters. We were on the bike trail and we were reminding the girls that actually from mistakes come some of the most wonderful things
2: in life.